Your attention, please. please. Listening to the AMPM podcast may cause recurring revenue streams and unfair, unfair advantages over your competitors. Other side effects may include better wallets, fired bosses, and longer vacations. Listen at your own risk. Here's your host, seven-figure entrepreneur and online marketing madman, Manny Coates. Manny Coates. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the AMPM podcast. My name is Manny Coates, and I will be your host. And this is the show where we discuss all things Amazon private label and how to generate recurring revenue streams 24 hours per day during the AM and the PM, hence the name of the show. Get it? AMPM podcast. As a matter of fact, I was in my car leaving the underground parking lot at our office and they have one of those rail arms that go up and down to let cars in and out of the building. Well, my key card, which should automatically get detected when I drive up to one of these things and open it up, it wasn't working. But while I sat there waving my key card like a maniac outside my window frantically, I was making money. How cool is that? Pretty cool, I think. Hey, everybody. I am here with Tim Jordan. Tim, how are you doing? Doing good. Welcome to the show, buddy. Thank you. Thank you. So, Tim, you've been selling on Amazon for about two years. This is what I have on my notes. Correct me if I'm wrong. Two years, and your private label sales are currently around 150000 per month? Yeah. So, um, we just hit our two-year anniversary. We started off with mostly wholesale, and we've been heavily getting into the private label, and that's now kind of our flagship stuff. And we're flirting with the $2 million a year average now. Nice. That's awesome. All right. So people don't probably don't know who you are. I know some, you speak at some events, so some of our listeners might. But I guess the first question, who is Tim Jordan? <laughs> the answer is probably a lot more uh, boring than I would like to admit. Um, I am a college dropout. I am a serial entrepreneur and um, one of those guys that probably gets weigh in over my head more than I should, but somehow gets things done. <laughs> Perfect. So how do you, so two years ago, did you get into private label right off the bat or was it wholesaling or what'd you do? So I was actually working for a company that does um, procurement and logistics for the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was traveling around the world doing these projects, getting good at it. And um, I started looking on Amazon and realized that a certain item on Amazon selling for 30 bucks that I could buy for like three. And I was like, you know, surely I can sell this on eBay. I didn't even know you could sell on Amazon. So I literally put a Craigslist ad out hoping to find a college kid that could teach me how to sell on eBay because we had, you know, a thousand wholesale, um, you know, contacts and, and we were a distributor for it. Mm -hmm. So some guy responds to me. He said, I'll meet you in a couple of days. In walks this 50 year old guy who is um, an Amazon seller and he started coaching me and he pretty much came in and said, um, you know, let me show you how this Amazon things works. and I kind of blew his mind because when we first started, we were placing twenty and thirty and forty thousand dollar wholesale orders, just jumping in that deep. Which, looking back in hindsight, was probably a little bit too aggressive, but it worked. <laughs> yeah. Now that's awesome. Okay, so cool. So, Go it ahead. was a complete accident, I guess you could say. Really? Okay. So yeah. So you didn't even know there were courses or anything out there. You just posted an ad on Craigslist, say I need some help. Yeah, it was help me sell on eBay, and in walks this Amazon coach. And this was and just a couple of years ago, just two years ago. This was. We literally signed up for an account, I think, November 1st, two years ago. Okay. So right about, just about the same time I jumped in. So that's crazy. And, and now you're doing, you're going to be hitting 2 million. And people are curious though, also, where are your, your margins, your profit levels? Where are you at with that kind of stuff? That kind so of our, our, our ROI, I, I hate margins. My head doesn't do that math, but our ROI is right around 28%. 28%. And that's on your private label? 
that's across the board. Now, our private label is somewhere around two or three hundred percent. And probably in the last six months of when is when we've completely swung into the full blown private label stuff. Um, I'm going in three weeks back to China to work a deal with some manufacturers. We're going to make some six figure purchases. And within another six months, we'll probably be completely out of wholesale and 100% private label. Okay, nice. So you're you're on your private label stuff. You're spending a dollar and you're generating two or three dollars back for just about everything that you're ordering. Yes. Okay, that's cool. All right. So can you say what category you're in? What kind of stuff? Without saying what it is, what you do? So we started in industrial and automotive, mm-hmm. which is where this business you know was kind of anchored in, and now it's anything and everything. Real? How um, many SKUs? How many SKUs you got? Probably. 250. And those are yours? Those are your private label? So private label, about 75. Wow. Okay. Extra wholesale. Yeah. How many people other than yourself work on this now? There are, we've got two full-time warehouse guys um, and me and another girl, basically. Okay. So you have your own warehouse? Yep. Actually, you have more than your own warehouse from what I understand. You want to tell us a little bit about that? (laughs) (laughs) So um, when I got started in the private label thing, uh, everybody was saying, you know, go to Alibaba and call these guys on Skype. And I said, well, I've been going to China. You know, I have these contacts. So I started calling my buddies in China and I'd say, hey, I have a product idea that's selling. I'm buying it wholesale. You can probably find the manufacturer. Mm-hmm. Of course, they'd find the manufacturer. They'd start shipping it to me. So we were already a licensed importer. And um, basically, people started contacting me that are in these, you know, other Amazon groups and saying, hey, can your buddy find this? Can you ship this with your stuff? I said, sure. So after about six months of rock and rolling on that, I figured out, hey, we kind of accidentally found a really, you know, in-demand business model that we're extremely good at. Mm -hmm. So we launched a second company, and um, it is co-owned by um, some partners here. Um, It was co-founded initially by me and a guy in China. I called one of my buddies in China and said, do you want to own a business? He said, well, I own a few, but sure, why not? We'll do another one. So we're a registered company in China. We're a registered company here in the U.S. So we started doing sourcing and logistics um, and then, you know, some handling FBA prep warehousing here for other basically private label sellers. Okay. So somebody wants to be handheld and and run through that whole process. You guys can take care of that. We take care of it. What was the name of that company? Hickory Flats. Hickory Flats. Is that website? Hickoryflats.com? Hickory-Flats. Okay. All right, cool. So there you go, guys. If you want to reach out to them and talk about that, that's cool. You know, it's going to save you probably a lot of headaches, I'd imagine. Yep. If somebody's is reaching out to you and they want to get into some kind of a private label product, how do they differentiate you know, between their product and, and what else is out there to try to make something sell really well? Do you have any tips on that? Yeah. Um, and this is where I get on my soapbox. Um, I get a really unique perspective on private labeling because I see literally hundreds of people doing it. So I see through the sourcing, I see through the logistics. So one of my... Um, and I know this is this can come across critical, and I don't mean to criticize because a lot of people are doing this, and they're doing very well, but I want to throw this out as an idea, is stay away, and this is the biggest mistake that I see people making, stay away from the quote-unquote five-star validated products. Okay, what does that mean? So, you know, there's a lot of these different software companies. Are you familiar with any of the Amazon software? Uh-huh, yeah. I actually yeah. have, I have a software probably company. probably heard of one or two. Yeah, 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 yeah. a little bit. <laughs> so, um, you know, you go to some of these search tools and you type in a keyword okay. and uh, or a key phrase or something, and it spits out this information and says, hey, this is a really high-ranking idea that, you know, high demand, low competition. You know how all that works. Right. Yep. What I've noticed is 
those are kind of dangerous because everybody sees the same information. Right. Okay. So when you get something that's a, you know, nine out of 10 or a four out of five stars, you're probably not the only person seeing that information. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And there's so many people that have this idea of private label as putting a sticker on a, on a box. You know, I call it white label. And again, I'm not trying to criticize. It does work for a lot of people, but I also see a lot of people that this doesn't work for. And what I mean is they pull up, you know, something like jungle scout and there'll be a good track record from seven or eight sellers. Okay. So they're looking at it. They say, Hey, if I, you know, have a few more pictures, if I differentiate this product a little bit, I should be able to come in right underneath these guys and, and compete. Well, the problem with sourcing a true private label product is it takes longer than people realize. People have really poor expectations about how long this takes. Yeah. By the time you find the suppliers, you get your sample order shipped and you may even sell, you know, 10 or 20 items and, and test it and it sells great. And then they go in and buy 3000 units. Well, by the time this is all taken place, you're looking at months realistically. Well, during that several month period, there might've been three or four or 500 other people who have seen that information who are doing the same thing as you. So when you first find an idea that's a, you know, nine out of 10, uh, you know, point validated, uh, product, by the time you actually get it loaded in your full production run, you're trying to sell, you might be on the 30th page because everybody else has seen that. And, you know, I, I don't share ideas, but I'll share, you know, some of the ones that I know about like the hooded baby towels. Mm -hmm. Okay. If you could have got into the hooded baby towels 18 months ago, you'd be on page one, you'd be selling boatloads of those things. but Two or three months ago, these validation tools were still showing that as a highly validated item. So I've got people still calling and saying, hey, can you source hooded baby towels? I still have people calling and saying, can you source fidget spinners? <laughs> like, guys, the ship has sailed. Like, yeah. what you don't know is, and, and I see it all the time, I'll have products that people will contact me about and they'll say, hey, can you source this for me? Can you get this for me? I'll say, yes, however, be advised that six months ago I had three other clients contact me were already full blown into production, you know, or had them produced. They've been in a container for 30 days. They're landing in my warehouse in 10 days. Mm -hmm. If you start the process now and it takes a few months, you're going to be nearly a year behind. So one of the things, and, and I don't know exactly what to do with the information, but I feel like I've got this bird's eye view and this unique piece of information. Um, just be careful about, these really, really exciting things because everybody else is seeing them too. And you've probably got more competition than you realize once you go through the time frame of actually getting those items produced and launching them. Okay. So what do you recommend? If you're going to use a tool and you know, everybody's doing that, right? They use a tool and it says, Hey, this is a, this is a good product. You know, the sales look good. Everything looks good. What do you recommend doing? Quit looking on Amazon for your next product. Really? Okay. So where would you look? So let me go through the typical process that I was taught, you know, okay. a lot of these courses, um, you know, go to Amazon, pull up jungle scout, find something there. Mm -hmm. If you find something that looks promising on Amazon, it's because there's at least 10 other people already doing it. Right. Mm -hmm. So never go to Amazon in the first eight steps of, of launching your product. You can use your computer and I love sites like Pinterest. Okay. Mm -hmm. I love sites like Etsy. Etsy's really cool because these are simple products. You know, someone's making them in their garage. So surely you can have these easily produced in a, you know, a, a, a big production system. Um, they're probably in demand. And you've got a lot of creative people out there that are basically building these things in their garage or in their living room that may be ahead of the curve on, you know, the, the popularity. You know, you all, or I oftentimes see stuff on Etsy 
and especially Pinterest, a year before it really starts taking off on the big sales platforms. So look places like that. The thing that I absolutely love to do is get off my computer. Go to, I know this sounds crazy, but go to flea markets. I'm in Alabama. Flea markets are like some crazy cult thing here. Mm -hmm. But there are people that have these brilliant product ideas, you know, a hillbilly in his overalls that has the new gizmo and Mm -hmm. he's making it out of wood. It serves a purpose and he's making it in his garage with some hand tools. Mm. He's not patenting that item. He's not getting a trademark on it. He wants nothing else to do than a hobby to take him to these flea markets and town squares every Saturday. But he's got a brilliant idea. I love trade shows. And when I say trade shows, of course, I go to ASD. I go to America's Mart Atlanta, the big ones. But I like the little industry-specific trade shows, right? Go to a fishing expo, all right? All these people that, you know, the masses that don't understand e-commerce, they're still going to these trade shows. So these guys are showing up at these trade shows with little gizmos and gadgets they're trying to launch. And even if they are patented, they'll at least give you ideas. You know, hey, he's onto something. Maybe if I did a different product, right? So what I'm talking about is not private labeling. I'm talking about private producing. And I know that sounds scary, but it can be easier than, than you know, getting molds produced and all that stuff. Yeah, and that was going to be my next question. Somebody goes to a flea market. They see the hillbilly that's created some really cool wooden whatever, a widget of some kind. And they're like, that's awesome. Everybody would love that if people knew it even existed. But I don't even know how to build this thing. I don't know anything about molds. I don't know where to go. This flea market is here or the swap meet, whatever it is, is here in the U.S. It's made of wood. Do I do this here in the U.S.? Do I go somewhere else? Do I go to China? Do I go to some other country? What is the process for doing something like that? Because that's going to be the overwhelming part for somebody new. So like yes. you said, right now, white labeling, private labeling is a matter of going to Alibaba, finding somebody who already has that product, slapping your logo on it, creating a custom box, and you're done. You don't have to create specs and, and explain how to create something. But how does that work? Yeah. So I found that really... If it's a simple item to begin with, if it's non-electronic, um, if it doesn't have chemicals in it, you know, like there's a lot of arts and crafts kit that has certain chemicals that people don't even know you can't really import. If you're talking about widgets, which is what we want, they're small, they're light, they're indestructible, they're not going to catch a house on fire, they're not going to blow up, right? We're talking about widgets. Um, if, if you're a flea market and I find, you know, a guy selling five of these things, I'm going to buy them out. I'm going to buy all five. And I'm going to take, I'm going to buy all ten, and I'm going to send four or five into Amazon. And I'm going to test it, right? You know, the, the pay-per-click testing and all that stuff to see if there is really demand. Well, I'm going to have a few of those in hand. Then it's as simple as sending pictures to people and saying, what can you do? All right. With advances in technology like CNC machines, CNC routers, anything that's metal, wood, plastic, mm-hmm. you can actually get those things um, done pretty easily without molds. All right. So if I've got a wooden widget that is a certain size or shape, go on Alibaba, get a sourcing agent, whatever, find a company that's making something similar, and they probably have the machinery to make that item or replicate, okay? One of the simplest things um, that I see people doing very well in is home decor items, okay? Home decor, it's inexpensive. People buy a mountain of it, and they want to change it constantly, you know, seasonally, so so it's repeat purchases. If you have a shape of a wooden something that hangs on a wall, that you think's really cool, find a factory that makes other wooden things that hang on walls, and they can probably plug that new shape into their CNC machine for nearly nothing. And they can run you out 20 or 30 of those things. How does that work, though? Just, do you just send them photos? Do you have to measure things out? Do you have to scan it? What's the, the process for something like that? So generally what I'll do is I'll, it, 
and I know this is maybe too simplified, but take pictures next to a tape measure mm-hmm. and then, um, you know, send that out to five or six or seven different people, get preliminary pricing, get their feedback, take the one or two that says, yeah, we can, we can do that easily. Preliminary pricing is this, and then send those samples to them and say, okay, try to replicate this. If it's a little bit off, it doesn't matter because mm-hmm. you don't have to match, you know, that existing one. Um, it's a new product essentially. Right. Um, plastics are really cool because everybody used to think, Hey, you have to get injection molding. You know, it's going to cost three to $10,000 to open up this mold. Well, now you can get uh, plastic CNC'd. So there's companies even here in the U S and you can look up places like Thomas net and stuff to find them that will take a block of plastic and basically whittle it down to your widget. So there is no mold producing. You can get it CNC'd hmm. 3d printing, hmm. right? Yeah. If you want to test a widget, it's going to be super expensive per unit to get them 3D printed. But if you want to test it, you know, test 20 units, <coughs> excuse me, get them 3D printed. If the test goes well and there's still really no other, you know, competing products, it's wide open. Mm-hmm. Don't say anything to anybody, fly under the radar and go ahead and invest that money and get a mold produced and get those things, you know, produced a lot cheaper. But you don't have to open a mold to try something. There's there's right. other alternatives. And 3D printing, almost every city has them now, right? Or do you go online and use a specific company? So I've got 3D printers here locally. Um, Huntsville, Alabama has more engineers per capita than anywhere else in the U.S. with the space, you know, the space industry and the um, missile defense and all that stuff. I've got a treasure trove of engineers with 3D printers in the garage they use for hobbies. And I'll call up and say, hey, I'll give you a few hundred bucks to make me 10 of these. Okay. Sure, no problem. But there are, every city has production 3D printing capabilities somewhere. How does somebody go to ThomasNet and what do they search for to find a plastic CNC'er? So they're not going to find somebody plastic CNC or, but look up a product that's similar. Okay. Um, you know, <laughs> there's not really an easy answer to that because every item's different. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times if you'll, if you'll just search on Amazon or search, just Google a similar product made in USA, you'll find manufacturers of these things. Okay. Right. So if somebody's manufacturing, they've got the equipment, um, they may not want to produce something for you, but at least get you on the right track of finding out who produces stuff for them. Okay. A lot of these manufacturers in the U.S. are, are brand owners are not manufacturing. They've got a third-party, um, you know, producer. Um, all these people that have brands of cookies, they're probably not baking these cookies themselves. They're outsourcing them to these giant commercial kitchens. Just get on the phone. Get off your computer. Get on the phone. Start calling these people and saying, hey, you've got this cool product that, you know, I see you advertise, you sell all over the place. If I wanted to get something similar to that made, do you have a production shop you could recommend? And if you get the right person on the phone, they'll tell you, yeah, we don't even produce that thing, um, or we might assemble it here. But in this city, here's a guy's cell phone number. Call him up. He runs all these things through his router for us. Okay, interesting. I, I went to a local company out here. was to design and, and create a paper product, essentially, let's say a, a, like a game. Yep. And then I end up finding out you know, I'm like, what's the turnaround time? And they said, oh, it's going to be this amount of time to create it, to, to do this, this time to print. And then it was a really long time to ship. I'm like, why is it taking six weeks to ship? And I found out that they send it to China, the job, yep. the, the company's here, they send it to China. It was actually cheaper yep. for them to outsource it to China and have them ship it back on a boat in large quantities than it is to actually print it here. Do you find that that's kind of the case with a lot of things? Like if I have a wood product that we're talking about a wood widget, is it better to go to China or somewhere else versus doing it here in the U.S.? Okay. So, so wood is one of my, it's turned into one of my passions. I will tell you, um, there are certain woods you can't get in China. So if you're getting to a niche market, mm-hmm. you can't buy oak in China. So if you need a home decor item that's made of oak, 
it has to be made here in the U.S. Hmm. Um, also, <coughs> excuse me, there are a lot of regulations about exporting and importing wood into the U.S. from different countries. Okay, the fumigation stuff, the um, insect stuff, the the rare commodity woods, the anti-dumping laws. There's a lot. So if you're looking into, and, and I don't necessarily sell home decor items, I'm using an example, but think about a home decor item that hangs on the wall. It's large. So yes, you can get that thing produced dirt cheap in China, but if you want it to be uh, American hardwood, you're not going to need it in China. If you've got to get it fumigated, if it's large to ship, a lot of times this stuff can be manufactured here in the U.S. for basically the same cost. Even if it's not the same cost, I think you can offset that by advertising made in the USA. Yeah. So if people are looking at five widgets and yours in the title says made in the USA, the wood is grown in, you know, the Appalachian mountains of Tennessee, whatever, people are willing to pay more for those items. So okay. you can offset it. And where would you find these wood manufacturers? Would you go to a Thomas dot or Thomas net or would you go somewhere else? When I first started looking for wood manufacturers, I went to lumber mills. I yellow page lumber mills and you know, they're all over the country in every region. There's lumber, maybe not Arizona, not a lot of trees there, but <laughs> right. anywhere where there's wood. And I would literally just walk into the sales office and say, hey, this is what I'm trying to do. Who around here buys wood from you and has a production shop? Okay. You're not going to find these guys online necessarily. If you do, they're going to be super expensive. But there are little shops all over the place that want this done. The same thing with steel. If you want something CNC'd out of metal, a widget, whatever, go to a steel supplier and just show up in the office and say, this is what I'm trying to do. Can you refer me someone that can make this? And they love to. They love giving referrals to their customers because that earns them brownie points. Yeah. So it's easier to find the supplier of the actual raw material than it is the producer. But that's kind of, you know, in my procurement background, how I track down that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I love the perspective that you bring where, you know, hey, don't be slapping your name on the product that's already out there. You know, create your own thing. Go find something. Find something that's in a small fair or swap meet, whatever it is. Something where it doesn't have mass exposure, I guess you could say, and then yeah. create that and make it your brand, you know, your, make it your flagship. Then you're not competing with anybody because it's, it's just you on there. So one thing that I found out is creating that brand, you can really do a lot with the sourcing to help with that. So okay. um, one thing that we've gotten into is we now have a team and operation in Central America. That's Central America. What part of Central America? We are located in Guatemala City. Okay. But we operate also in Honduras and Costa Rica and a couple other places. And the way this came about is, you know, our company with the logistics and sourcing works really well for people that aren't in the U.S., people that can't legally import. We just take their stuff imported on their behalf. So I started getting all these international clients and I ended up getting hooked up with this group in um, Central America. There was one guy down there who was taking students, linking them with some funding and was teaching them to sell on Amazon. And it was very much a philanthropic endeavor. You know, these third world countries, you know, they can live on 30 bucks a day and change their entire lineage where we can't put gas in our car to drive to work for 30 bucks a day, right? Mm -hmm. So if they could get a few products on Amazon selling, it would work. So I went down and I'm meeting with, um, this is maybe a year and a half ago, meeting with, or maybe a year ago, I can't remember now, it's all a blur, but meeting with some of these students, meeting with the guys organizing it. And I'm, I'm sitting in Guatemala City with these kids that are smart and they're being educated on the Amazon sales system. And they keep talking about China to the U.S., China to the U.S., China to the U.S., which works. All right. Private labeling. I hate the term, but it works. Um, will it work forever? I, I don't think so. I think it's getting more competitive. And I told these guys, I said, guys, what about stuff here? They said, what do you mean? I said, all right. So I talked to my buddy. I said, tomorrow 
let's all go to a, a market. We went to this market. You can Google it. It's called Antigua. Okay, it's Central America. It's this old um, city volcano in the background. Really cool. And it's full of local arts and crafts and artisans, right? Just full of them. And uh, I had a challenge. I said, guys, let's, and, and they're video documenting everything. I said, let's go in here. I said, I'm giving you a limit of five U.S. dollars maximum, you know, whatever your local currency, the Casales. And I said, you have to buy three of one item. So find one item that you think might sell and buy three of them. I said, I'm going to carry them back in my luggage. I'm going to send them into your accounts. And I want you to run, you know, the pay-per-click testing and see how they do. And they were completely baffled. I said, because guys, I said, what you're doing is you're looking on Amazon to find what other people are doing. And for the large part, you're copying it. I said, but there are unique products here. This is the flea market scheme, right? There are items here that people are creating that don't have internet. They're never going to be on Amazon. They have no idea how to export it. They wouldn't have to sell it. But you can, you know, basically use them as a supplier to create your own product. If they're onto something 80%, you can do some keyword research and say, hey, if I bundled your product with this product or if you made it a little bit differently. But there are producers down there that are inexpensive that need work. So a couple of them brought me terrible ideas that I knew would just be awful. And some of them brought me stuff and I was like, oh, my goodness, this is perfect. You know, kitchen items. Now you can advertise handmade. You can advertise Central America, the Americas, right? It's not made in Asia. So people love this stuff. I was uh, I met with a guy. He's a he's a business owner down there and an entrepreneur. And he said, hey, I hear you're the Amazon guy. He said, my wife wants to sell bandana baby bibs. OK, hmm. she wants to sell on Amazon. Well, again, I, I kind of rolled my eyes. I'm like, oh, man, dude, that ship has sailed. I was like, you're 18 months behind. He said, you know, he's wanting me to get these things in China. And I pulled up Amazon. I said, look, I said, you can buy a three pack for nine ninety nine. There's no margin in this. And I said, but, and I started thinking, and I had this epiphany, right? You know, Tom's shoes? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Tom's shoes cost less than a dollar to produce, but people pay 50 bucks a pair. For the donation. For the story. For the story. Okay. okay. For the story. You buy a pair, buy we a pair? give a pair. Right. All right? So I said, what if you got these bandana baby bibs made here? So he's in Central America, and he's trying to buy from China through me, and I'm like, dude, Get them made here. I said, now instead of $9.99, let's brand the heck out of this thing. Let's do some social media stuff. Let's sell them for $29.99. These are gift items, right? People don't, people don't want to you know, buy their soon-to-be daughter-in-law a $10 gift. They want to buy a $30, $40, $50 gift. So obviously the volume's not going to be as high as if you were cranking out 2,000 units a month. But with those profit margins, who cares? And now you're actually building a brand too. Mm. So that... That specific guy, he has like 20 different SKUs now of handmade Guatemalan items with amazing branding, and he tells the stories like on social media. He'll come in and he'll, you know, do pictures and he'll do, you know, short videos of these women out behind their houses with their kids, you know, running around them, producing these handbags, you know, by hand, or producing these, these you know, clothing articles or, you know, these bibs, and they're sewing them up on 50-year-old U.S. made sewing machines that were bought at a Goodwill and shipped down there in a container. Mm. And we get those things produced. We ship them up here. We sell them. And it works. So it's not necessarily the product, but it's the story. So by using some smart sourcing, you can tell the story and build your brand. Think about coffee. All right, you can go down and buy a pound of Folgers for nothing. But if you want a pair or a, a, a pound of Costa Rican, Guatemalan, Honduran, really nice, you know, they call it private label, but let's say like a fair wage, fair trade, you know, coffee brand, 
people are paying nine, 10, 12 bucks a pound for that stuff. So it all has to do with where you're getting it and how you're introducing the product, where I feel like a lot of times just selling the Chinese stuff off Alibaba and sticking a sticker on it, your only, your real niche is price. Yeah. You know, you're just racing to the bottom. How often do you get down to South America? I am right now going about once a month. I just, um, we've got a humongous project that I'm super excited about that's not even related to e-com. Mm-hmm. Um, a company uh, that wants to do handmade leather goods. And we've got probably 12 leather producers down there that make some of the finest leather you've ever seen. And uh, they're doing anything from luggage to women's handbags to, you know, really nice products. And we just had a bunch of production samples delivered yesterday. And I've got to go down in two weeks and um, or a week and a half and meet with some tanners. You know, we're buying locally raised cow hides, taking them to these individual artisans. The hardware, you know, the buckles and snaps we're getting out of China and shipping straight in. And then we're importing that stuff. And you're going to see it in retail stores, you know, this spring. Really cool. nice stuff. Nice. You got your toes uh and a bunch of different projects, it sounds like. So that's kind of cool. I do. Right. So the Central America thing sounds really cool. Yeah. But keep in mind, there are limits to this. If it's wood, fabric, leather, you know, ceramic, these handmade stuff, that's great. If it's an electronic, no, you're going to be looking at China, you know, Singapore, somewhere like that. Um, if it's oversized, um, make it in the USA if you can. You know, if it's something simple, if it's wood, if it's metal something like that, you know, try to have it made here. And I'm seeing people do it more and more often and it's mm-hmm. working. So if you were going to be, um, you were talking about fabrics and stuff, if you were selling blankets, for example, would you get that in South America or would you get that in China? If it's an already saturated product, go to Central America and tell that story. If it's, you know, a new product, something that, well, like the bandana baby bibs, or let's say um, the, what are those baby wraps? Uh, muslin, muslin wraps. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, super cheap. You can get them anywhere. Mm -hmm. Most of them are made in China or Bangladesh, somewhere like that. If you want to get into that market that's saturated, no. Go somewhere like, go somewhere like Africa. Go somewhere like Central America. You know, go to one of these third world countries that you can build a story on and charge three times as much. Mm -hmm. If you need to get your price down on a non-saturated item, you just need to produce inexpensively. Absolutely, nobody beats Asia, in my opinion. Really? Okay. So it's just really product specific. If the labor cost is just less out there or they have the facilities to bring the cost down, what is it the, the main driving force for that, that lower pricing? You're talking about in China? China versus, yes, yeah, someplace in South America. So China has the production ability to have the automation. Have you ever been to China? I have, yeah. Okay, so you've been in those factories. Even if it's you know dingy, dirty, man, they have got equipment and they've got the, you know, the manpower and the logistics abilities to, you know, put out just a mountain of items a day, you know, just their production ability is huge. They can get raw materials overnight. You know, the distribution system is massive. So because you're taking less time, Mm. there's less man hours involved in each item produced and the cost of labor there is, you know, about a sixth or an eighth of what it is here in the U.S. for similar industries, you know, in a large apples to apples comparison. So it's not just the cost of labor. It's, it really is their production ability. Um, you know, I've been in factories over there with, you know, 2,000 people that are highly educated, know what they're doing. The guys on the assembly lines have college degrees, you know, and, and they're really taking care of what they're doing. That's why the iPhones are made over there. You know, everybody thinks that everything in China is cheap or it's junk. There is a lot of cheap junk, don't get me wrong. But some of the nicest products in the U.S. are made there just because their system is better. And they don't have 
a lot of you know the the labor issues and the union stuff that we do here that drives the price of um, you know production up. But also they're just a lot of it they're better at than us. You know that's why Apple makes their stuff over there. Apple would love to bring production of the iPhones down here or over here, but it would you know some estimates are triple the cost of the iPhone, and then you know it's it's out of the market. Nobody's going to buy it. Hmm, interesting. Okay, so. That's very interesting. I, I have never sourced anything or even looked in South America. What's the name of the company that deals with that? That's still Hickory Flats. That's yep. still Hickory Flats. Okay. So, yep. well, that's cool then. Okay. So you guys handle the full logistics. Are you familiar with Flexport? I am. So are there, in terms of how they do things and how you guys do things, it's pretty much similar or are there some big differences? So I would say we're a little bit more boutique. Mm-hmm. Um, the typical freight forwarding system you still have to basically itemize these individual processes where um, with something like what we're doing, or, or, I'll give you an example. Okay. I talked to a lady on Facebook yesterday. She said, I have, I've got some stuff produced in China. I have no idea how to ship it. No idea. So I sent her a, a private message and I said, Hey, I'm not trying to sound spammy, but I'll give you a 15 minute phone call and just educate you on the process. And I talked to her and, um, so I was walking her through the typical process. You know, you've got to, are you FOB, you X-Works? You know, who's getting it to the port? Once it gets to the port, which freight forwarder is picking it up? Who's checking your fumigation stuff? Who's checking, you know, is it a certain product that has to go to Hong Kong to ship out so it doesn't get inspected by air? Does it have magnets in it? You know, all these things that I'm trying to educate her on. She said, but your company can just do all of that, right? And I said, yes, but I'm trying to educate you, not sell to you. But essentially, that's what we do is if someone calls and says, hey, I have two pallets. What we say is, or if they say I have boxes, say, how big are the boxes? How heavy are the boxes? Are they going to FBA? And we give them a quote, or what's a general, you know, item. If they say, you know, it's boxes of opium, obviously we're not going to ship it. (laughs) But we can pretty much give you a quote right then. And then if they say, okay, go for it. The only other information we need is what's the cell phone number of your sales guy? And our office in Shanghai calls them up and just handles everything. That all gets, we can airship, we can air express, we can do consolidated air freight. For the most part, if we do consolidated, it has to come to our warehouse where I'm located at and we open up everything. I call up and I say, your stuff's here. What do you want done with it? You know, doing UPS three boxes to get there fast and we'll LT all the rest. Mm-hmm. You want us to ship samples to your photographer. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're a lot more custom. Now, Flexport's rocking. You know, they've got this super automated system and they're huge. Um, in, no, in no way would I criticize what they're doing. But I think that we fit a different clientele because we do a little bit more hand-holding. We do a little bit more, you know, custom interaction. Mm-hmm. We do stuff like double-check stuff. I have a client that was trying to ship something the other day, and we said, hey, this has wood in it. Where's your fumigation report? She said, I don't know anything about a fumigation report. I said, well, let me explain the way fumigation works and what can happen if we'd imported this stuff without the fumigation, you know, and it got stuck at the port. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of our, our niche. Now, we're not super expensive because since we do consolidate and we do do a lot of volume, our prices are so low that even when we add a little markup to it, it's still cheaper typically, especially on small shipments that people can do themselves. Okay, cool. All right. You mentioned uh, wood products. A lot of people have wood products. It might be an electronic wood product. It might be a whatever product. If somebody's coming out with a wood product and they're bringing it in from China, you mentioned fumigation, you mentioned a few different things. What should they definitely be aware of and what's the number one mistake you see people making the the costliest mistake is called the anti-dumping taxes are you familiar with those no if you could explain it that'd be great okay so here's a short of it the u.s government has you know 
people getting their arm twisted, these politicians. And there are manufacturers in the U.S. that have said, we create a product and China is whipping our butts on the production cost. So these politicians will say, no problem, we're going to put an anti-dumping tax on these items. For example, if you're bringing in a notebook into the U.S., okay, a spiral-bound 8.5 by 11, you know, kid's notebook, if it's blank paper, the duty is like 1% or 2%. If it's a spiral-bound notebook with lines of a certain, you know, distance and measurement, that dumping, the, the duties on that can be as high as 150%. Why is it? Um, because some manufacturer of notebooks here said, hey, this isn't fair. They're whipping our butts in prices. So a politician passed this anti-dumping statute that said this is 150% tax. That's what it is. Now, the way this started was people were literally dumping junk into the U.S. You remember, um, I don't remember, 10 years ago, eight years ago, the Chinese drywall debacle? No, I don't remember think so. that. Mm-mm. So drywall is, you know, made from, you know, natural materials here in the U.S. There's manufacturers that make it. Well, <laughs> these Chinese companies had made this artificial drywall and were importing it for like half the cost of gypsum drywall. And it's terrible. It's like some foam board. It had possible carcinogens in it. You know, it shrink and expand and bust seams. It was terrible. So somebody said they're dumping this junk on us. Let's make this HTS code product, you know, the harmonized tariff schedule that, you know, they determine duties on. Let's make that 200%. It jacked the price up enough where nobody could import it. Okay. The other big one is pressed particle board furniture. Okay. A lot of this Ikea stuff, you know, the the OSB that's got a laminate over the top of it. A lot of that stuff has anti-dumping tax on it because there's U.S. manufacturers that basically said it's not fair. They're whipping our butts in price. So some politician passed this, you know, command basically. It said, all right, if you're selling a computer desk with this size laminate, you know, three-quarter inch boards that's the pressed particle boards specifically from China, mm-hmm. 150% tax. So what happens is these Alibaba suppliers aren't going to tell you that or they just don't know. You know, they might be selling to 12 different countries. They don't, they don't know our import laws. So people will go on, they'll buy those notebooks and they, maybe they see the price of these things on Amazon is high, and they'll go, ooh, you know, these are $15 items. I can buy them for a buck. This is going to be awesome. Well, they don't realize the reason they're 15 you know, bucks on the listing is because they're not a dollar. You know, they might be $4 by the time you pay all this anti-dumping and stuff like that. So to answer your question, when you're checking your products, make sure that they don't fall on an HTS code. They're not that common, but probably every month I see someone trying to buy something and ship it. And I get to pull a red flag and say, oh, hold up a second. You need to understand this. And we're not that big. So, you know, if we constitute a millionth of the percentage of imports and we're catching one or two a month, I know there's a lot of people getting, you know, hosed on these things. Yeah. Um, the second thing is import and export regulations. Okay. I'm not just talking about the U.S. I'm talking about um, exporting out of China as well. There are safety considerations right. for air freight. You know, if you have a product that has any chemical in it, it might not be approved to get shipped via air. Who would have ever thought that magnets were an issue? Right. Yeah. Like, let's say a gift box with gift box with a magnet clasp on it. Uh You know, you can't really put those in an airplane because it can mess up, you know, the Navitronics and stuff. Mm. There's enough of them. And then when you import them, you sure don't want those things in a container full of consolidated loads because the, uh, Customs Border Patrol often does magnet, you know, the, the x-ray exams on containers. Mm-hmm. Well, if there's a pallet in there with magnets in it, it's going to blow that x-ray to pieces. Really? And now you're getting sent to, you know, that 
exam that that uh, detailed exam where they take a month to pull all your stuff out. Right. So it really I can't answer your question very easily because there's so many little details. <laughs> yeah, it sounds but, like it. But before you purchase products, this is the big mistake I see people making. They find out these problems after the production is done. Right. So they're not asking these questions. Am I going to have import problems? Am I going to have anti-dumping? Can I air freight this stuff? Do that before you place the initial order on these things, and don't ask your supplier because yeah, they're not. Gonna know, they have no incentive really to tell you the truth on and that, where do you, or they just don't. Where do you look up HTS codes specifically? A uh, clearing agent. I'm pretty familiar with HTS codes, and I'm still completely lost. Mm -hmm. um, so you don't go to a website. Are, you don't go to a website. You actually use a clearance agent. I, I call my clearing agent, or I send an email. I said. And, and I don't even send him the code that the supplier tells me. I send him pictures of the products and I describe it. And I said, what HTS code does this fall under? Mm -hmm. HTS codes are a little bit like accounting. They can be subjective. Yeah. Okay. So if you bring in something and you're claiming it's a HTS code, whatever, the clearing agent can actually look at that and say, no, that's not the HTS code. It's this HTS code. Okay. For instance, there are subtle differences like, is this a kitchen tool or a kitchen gadget? Hmm. Well, if you're bringing in a garlic press and you think it's a kitchen tool, but they have it named kitchen, you know, garlic squisher on the invoice, the commercial invoice, because, you know, the China, the English translation, you know, bad. Well, now that CBP guy can say, oh, this isn't a kitchen tool. This is a kitchen gadget. Your HDS code just changed. And the percentage you pay goes way up potentially. Yep. So oh. what I do is I send all of the information to my clearing agent to get what he thinks the HTS code should be. Mm -hmm. And then I ask him, hey, if we're going to claim this HTS code, what exactly word for word needs to go on my packing slip, my commercial invoice, mm -hmm. right? Don't let them come up with it. Um, we tried to ship something recently, or we, were, we did ship it, and uh, talked to you know, one of my guys over in the China team. And I said, hey, I need that, that packing slip. And they sent something. The line item was built. All right. That was the description. And That's I was it. laughing at it. I said to my clearing agent, I said, hey, can we import these belts? He said, belt? He said, is it a lawnmower belt? Is it a women's <laughs> belt? Is it a All children's right. belt? He said, is it a, you know, he said, what is it? And I was just laughing at it. So I sent it back to the new guy in China. I said, here's the description you need to type out. And we made it, you know, 70 characters long so that there could really be no arguing that that HTS code isn't what we said it was. But do you find that that typically happens with really small companies that aren't really shipping a lot to the U.S.? Because I ask because a lot of the bigger companies I've dealt with are typically pretty professional and they, I don't have those issues. And when I do have those issues, it's usually, I almost feel like it's a mom and pop shop somewhere, a little teeny factory in, in China. I think that generally speaking, you're more likely to have that with a small mom and pop shop, but that doesn't exclude the big ones either because yeah. you're these big legit companies in China. Remember you're dealing with just one salesman. And if mm -hmm. that salesman wants that sale, I mean, he has incentive to not, let you know it's an anti-dumping thing you know and and i hate to say that it, it sounds like i'm saying they're all dishonest which they aren't but chinese business culture is different than ours okay they are yes society everything is yes 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 because it's almost rude to say no when really what you need is you need for them to say no this doesn't work or no this isn't going to easily go through port you know mm -hmm. so it, it's not necessarily a uh, malicious thing it's a breakdown in communication and you know really just a cultural difference um, you just can't trust them all the time. You need to inspect what you expect, yeah. essentially. Cool. Well, there's been a lot of information here. We've been just kind of pounding away. I've probably got about 30 more questions I could ask you just on South America <laughs> alone. So we're going to have to get you on a different episode and have you come on and, and we can talk about those.
But is there any question, uh, any final question that I did not ask you that you wish I would have? I can't think of anything. No? I'm yeah. sure as soon as we get off, I'll think about, oh, you should ask me that. Yeah, but, no, perfect. No. So, okay, so you, you have some really cool stuff. I mean, you're, you're crushing it on private label yourself. Actually, I, I have one more question. Some people are, I know how it is, you know, people don't want to talk about what they sell. They don't want to, you know, if I post this online, then a million people are going to copy it. You are a seller yourself and you're handling packages and products that come in from, from people. How do you differentiate? How do you separate yourself from that when someone says, well, you're going to know my product? So one, I like to be able to sleep at night without feeling guilty. Now, here's the big thing I tell people. Of course, we do non-disclosure agreements. I have a pre-signed non-disclosure agreement on our website. You know, download that thing. Here's the big thing is this business operates off of reputation. Okay? You're the same way. Helium 10 gets keywords thrown into it all the time. You could scan that and say, you know, hey, what were the best three keywords? I'm going to launch this myself. But if you did that once and got caught, what happens? Yeah. You're done. I mean, your entire credibility is toast. Um, and really, the truth is you're so busy on your stuff right now, you don't have time, you know, to be taking all these other ideas and trying to launch them. But the big thing is reputation is super important. You know, we're all on social media. The world is small, right? I can get on my phone right now and text somebody in 20 different countries within five seconds. So communication is readily available. So if someone found out that I scammed their idea, it's going to put us out of business. So the first answer is, you know, we have morals. Second answer is it would put us out of business if we got caught. You're familiar with the other software guy that recently took some flack. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows about that, right? His business is, I assume, toast. I hope not, but I suspect it is. Um, but the truth is, there's just so many ideas out there that nobody could, nobody could steal ideas and get to all of them. That's what I tell um, people, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, and all of these different software companies, you know, this information is out there. And to be honest with you, and again, this sounds a little bit critical, most of the stuff that we're sourcing and producing isn't unique. Other people are doing it, mm-hmm. right? Even the stuff that, you know, like I'm helping clients, let's say these leather bags coming out of Guatemala, other people are doing leather bags. Leather bags aren't a secret. You know what I mean? Fidget spinners aren't a secret. Hooded baby towels aren't a secret. So there's really not much information out there Mm -hmm. that people couldn't get organically if they dug deep enough. Now, the way you're going to differentiate is, like I said, telling a story, your, um, your sourcing, you know, ability where you're sourcing from, um, and doing something just completely off the wall and targeting a certain niche. Yeah. You know? Setting yourself apart so drastically, whether it's the story or it's something else, that doesn't matter if somebody actually knows what you're, you know, that you're the, the manufacturer of this product and knows where you're manufacturing it. They still can't copy you because you've, you've branded yourself so well. So, so you were at CES in Orlando, um, you know, a couple, was that two months ago? Yeah. So I was down there and I was having, I was having lunch with all these people I hadn't met, you know, sitting around a table with eight or 10 guys. And someone says, you know, what's your name? He says, well, here's my business card with my brand name on it. And everybody at the table was like, whoa, you just, whoa, that, that's your brand name. He's like, yeah, look me up on Amazon. There I go. People were blown away because usually people are tiptoeing. Yeah. So what category do you sell in? They're like, I'm in the home electronics category. And you're like, come on, man, just tell me what you sell. I know I'm not telling you what you sell. Well, this guy had done such a jam-up job in creating a unique product and creating his brand. He doesn't care if people try to copy him. They're never going to get there. Yeah. So you want to be the guy that can hand your business card out at an Amazon conference and say, 
here's my username, you know, or my, my seller name. This is what I sell. Here's my brand name. Check it out. I think it's really cool. Yeah. If you can get to that point, then you're not a private labeler anymore. You're a private producer. Yeah. And that's where I think everybody needs to get to. I'm glad I asked that question because that was a cool five minutes there. So awesome. Yeah. Thank you, Tim, for coming on the show. It's been amazing, actually. This is a, a lot cooler episode than I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be good, but <laughs> I think that the fact that you brought up the whole South America stuff and that twist on how to find products, I wasn't expecting that. That's what I meant. It was just like, wow, that's cool. Kind of opens up the mind a little bit, you know? If they want to reach you, okay, we've already mentioned the website. Is there a good way for people to reach out to you? They can send an email to sales at hickory-flats.com. Okay, cool. I just wanted to give you the opportunity to... Yeah, you know, allow or people just, to reach out just to on the website, we've got contact forms and information about what we're doing and all that good stuff. Perfect. Thank you, Tim. You've been listening to the AM PM podcast hosted by Manny Coates. For more information, insider, insider tools, tools, and to get the resources mentioned in this episode, visit ampmpodcast.com.